Hi everyone, my name is Blake Skews and welcome back to the SCU Buzz podcast. Today I have with me is Dr. James Sippo. He initially studied a Bachelor of Science with honours at Southern Cross University and then went on to do his PhD, looking at unknowns within the mangrove carbon cycle. And now he's a researcher based at Southern Cross University. His recent work has involved developing the Blue Care model, looking at flood impact and management options, and climate change. The list is really endless with Dr. James Sippo, so let's let him tell us all about it, shall we? Welcome to the podcast, James. Thank you, Blake. Great to be here. It's great to have you, mate. It's a real pleasure. I I was researching a bit about your um, career and what you've done already, and it's pretty full on. There's a lot involved, which is great. I really just want to know a little bit of everything about what you do because you are a very fascinating person from what I read. So I will jump straight off the bat and say, with your research, since it's very in-depth, let's first strip it back to use a bit of layman's terms to start so we can tell everyone um, that's listening to the podcast today. What is blue carbon? All right. Blue carbon is what I um, live and breathe most of the time. <laughs> no, um, blue carbon is, is uh, carbon sequestered or stored in coastal marine ecosystems. So we're really thinking mangroves, salt marsh, seagrass. So this is all blue carbon. And what it really is, it's a, it's a hotspot uh, for carbon storage. All plants take up atmospheric carbon, basically, CO2, and they build their physical structure with it. But most of that in, an, in a normal forest, um, as it falls to the ground, it just gets turned back into CO2. So little microbes eat that plant material and just breathe it back to the atmosphere. So it's quite a short cycle. Whereas in the coastal environment where you've got seawater, um, that's where this magic chemistry happens and what falls to the ground doesn't get turned back into CO2. Well, some of it does, but a lot of it gets stored. Um, that seawater preserves it. And that is a really important function that sets apart by these coastal forest types from other forest types and is making them a really important player in the carbon cycle. So for a long time, we've been kind of researching this the carbon side of things and and just putting numbers on different pathways. And Southern Cross has actually been doing that for a long time, well before I've been here. And there's amazing researchers in in blue carbon here, Um, Brad Eyre, Damien Ma, Isaac Santos. And these guys are really kind of like leading the field. But now over the recent years, there's this real growing interest because governments are looking for ways to kind of avoid, you know, to look better for one thing, but also to reduce our national emissions and mangroves particularly and, and, and blue carbon are kind of being seen now as this way of as kind of mitigating climate change by just restoring the coastline. So that's what has got me very excited um, over the last couple of years. Yeah. So, yeah. Does that answer the question? Oh, absolutely. Thank you for that. Yeah, sure. I also wanted to know what initially led you to research such a fascinating area? Well, it was actually a bit of a scenic route. I got into biogeochemistry, which is the which was the unit um, when I was doing my bachelor here, uh, coastal biogeochemistry. The thing that made me most excited about that was actually coal seam gas. So back when I was doing my bachelor was when there was this kind of looming threat of coal seam gas hanging over Lismore, and a lot of people were really concerned about the industry kind of moving in around the city and. 
the people who were doing the most active research on it were um, my PhD supervisors and honours supervisors, so Isaac Santos and Damien Ma. And it was actually through my interest in coal seam gas that I um, opportunistically jumped on a, an exciting research trip that was going around the country. And from then on, I just, yeah, I kind of got hooked on it. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> Wasn't what, you know, mangroves hadn't caught my eye, um, yeah, before. But, yeah, I guess I realised, for one thing, what I just found the, the science very interesting. Once I dug into it a bit and realised how important they were, it kind of just rolled from there. I just yeah, went from honours to PhD and have stayed in the mangrove sphere although now i've actually taken a little sidestep and i'm working on on the rivers at the moment oh so. amazing so just dipping your toe in kind of all different areas <laughs> well i guess biogeochemistry is like that you can you know once you understand the elemental cycling in a mangrove forest it is it's not identical but you can apply the similar concepts into different environments and in and rivers and estuaries have do have similar things going on that's great. Well, you've also been working with a team of leading scientists from universities around the country to develop the Blue Chem model. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. So in at the start of this year, 2022, there was a new method come out called Tidal Restoration of Blue Carbon Ecosystems Method. So basically the government has built a system or a method so that people can, who have um land that is low-lying coastal land that has potential to have mangroves on it um, they can restore that and get carbon credits so it's really a carbon credit method um, there's quite a lot of specific kind of criteria so it, the land needs to be historically drained and a lot of coastal land has been drained so all of if you think around the lismore area all of the sugarcane land um, would have once been this kind of yeah kind of intertidal or supertidal um, wetlands, big Melaleuca forest, but a lot of mangrove and um, seagrass in the deeper channels. And all of that has been drained and they've put um, barrages and barricades, things that are stopping seawater from, from coming in. So it's like one-way one way gates. Um, so they let water out, let the water drain off the land, but it doesn't let seawater come back in. And the method is really aimed at farmers and owners of kind of marginal coastal land that's not very productive um, and all they have to do is remove whatever is stopping seawater from coming onto their land and they can they're eligible to start getting carbon credits for it and then the mangrove or salt marsh or seagrass will naturally um, just regenerate so that the idea is that um yeah, they don't have to go and plant anything or, you know, they might have to make some changes to the hydrology, making sure that seawater covers the land area, but then the blue carbon ecosystem will just naturally recover and they can get credits for it. Incredible. Yeah. That would be definitely good for the future of our environment. Definitely. Well, what has been the biggest challenge uh, with your research over the years? Oh, probably getting paid. <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, no, look... Oh, I mean, there's many challenging aspects to research, I think. I think initially I was struggling. I was doing quite specific research in um, blue carbon and I was struggling to find the application. So, you know, I was doing stuff that no one could really relate to, you know, like, for example, like, oh, the exchange of ex volatile organics from, you know, a mangrove creek or something, you know, doesn't mean anything to anyone. And I kept feeling like it wasn't, 
really achieving much in the world, you know, because as an environmental scientist, I think a lot of us, we get into environmental science to save the world more or less, you know, we want to make a difference. And I really struggled to just be writing academic papers and not feel like I was having any impact. But that's what has been so exciting about Blue Canvas. So all of last year, I, I kind of joined up with this team from of researchers from all around the country. And we put together this method. Basically, we built the, the blue carbon method um, from scratch. And we used all of these papers that we'd been working on for you know however long for our careers. And it was that research which built the method, which underpins the calculations of that leads to how many carbon credits a farmer will get, basically. So all of these kind of obscure papers, suddenly they were getting used, put into this yeah big calculator um and that kind of really changed the way i saw academia actually because up to that point i was getting disillusioned with just writing papers and not making real world change and suddenly all of that effort just built a tool that suddenly the government wants to use and there's money to just restore the ecosystem that we've all been working on so i feel like um positive spin on on my biggest challenge well, you were also heavily involved with the recent floods in the Northern Rivers. Uh, what do you think can be done to alleviate future flood impacts uh, in the Northern Rivers? Huh. Look, tough question. Yeah, to make real change in the Northern Rivers is, well, it's a very big challenge. And I guess there's a few aspects to that. So we have climate change. So Climate change um, is driving, obviously, not just floods. You know, two years ago, we had fires and all of our resources were focused entirely on fire, spread very thinly. And this year, it's been La Nina. And the challenge is now to, to live with that scale of flood. So I guess there is a big unknown, you know, how often will we expect a flood of that magnitude? And the data available doesn't go back in time that far to, to really know, you know, how frequent we can expect a flood like that. I mean, my own interpretation is that we, it's still a, not a very common occurrence, you know, like potentially maybe that was the one in a hundred year flood. Um, I think everyone's perspective on what a one in a hundred year flood actually means is has changed so you know i i owned a house in lismore um which i was very lucky to sell before the floods um but you know the one in a hundred flood concept to me was quite a i thought that was quite secure you know without really thinking that that actually it meant that every year that i lived in the house there was a you know a one percent chance that a flood would come into my house you know if someone had come to my door and rolled a 100 sided dice every year and said okay we're going to check this year is it this year that your your house is going to get destroyed you know i would have been way more scared but somehow the one in 100 concept um, reassured i think a lot of people when in fact it's not a great security so now we have to look at the future. We have climate change, which is suggesting that a one in a hundred year flood will become a one in 10 year flood, more or less, by the end of the century. So if we're looking a bit further ahead, which we probably should do at some point, um, then yeah, Lismore is in a pretty tricky situation if we're talking about floods. So management of that on a realistic scale, I think is gonna be really challenging. But just to improve on the situation, I think the best thing we can do is to start to regenerate the entire system 
from the upper catchment where we have a heap of degraded small streams and creeks. So riparian zones and and steep slopes. If, if we can vegetate upper catchment areas, I'm probably being a bit idealistic, but that would slow down the water movement across the landscape, um, would stabilise the banks, we'd get less erosion. So I guess one interesting thing that I've been um, thinking about, and it came from, it kind of started with a conversation from another SCU researcher, John Grant, Dr. John Grant, that erosion, so basically soil in the water is adding to the water level. So some of the data, it's like five to 30%. So basically, who knows, at the peak of a flood, maybe a third of the water is soil. So if you can like stop the erosion, yeah, can you really reduce the, the flood levels significantly? That's a, that's a question that we don't have an answer to right now, but if it is really gonna make a difference, then revegetating the riparian zones for flood mitigation is a really exciting concept. Anyway, that's one potential mitigator. And also in the lower catchment, um, using something like Blue Cam to um, restore all of this lower section of the river. So basically all of these little, all that drained land in the lower catchment. So you've got all this sugarcane farming land. It used to all be connected up to the river and the, the lower river is tidal. So every time you've got an incoming tide, now you have the incoming tide only stays in the main channel, more or less, whereas historically that incoming tide would cover a huge area of land. So you'd have all these, all the if we open up all the gates and that incoming tide can spread across the landscape and go out again every outgoing tide, that increases the amount of water coming in and out of the river massively every tidal cycle, which is twice a day, right? And that means that the channel at, at Ballina becomes a lot bigger. It gets deeper. So, you know, there's all these issues with um, the rivers silting up. And it's because we cut off all of the land area. So essentially, it's like the river can't breathe. It's like if the river was along, we've cut off half of its area, yeah. you know, so it can't breathe in and out. No circulation. Yeah. So just increasing that will make the actual channel bigger, deeper. And then when a flood comes, there is um, a whole lot more channel to get that water out of there. So by restoring the lower catchment, um, the other thing is we have every, after every flood, we have fish kills. And that's because basically we have all this kind of exotic vegetation, all these like, you know, exotic grasses and stuff on the catch on the floodplain. So when the water sits on them, they all die and that strips the oxygen out of the water and that kills the fish. So if we, um, if we open up all the floodgates and um, replant native vegetation on the on the floodplains, um, essentially we'd have a much much healthier river, and we'd have a river that would also um, deal a lot better with floods. Yeah, it just takes a huge amount of, uh, I guess, change to the land, and it would require a lot of people to be invested in it. You know, it needs money. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's where it starts, really. Yeah. Well, James, we talk about climate change. What can the everyday individual like myself do to make a difference? Oof. Another tough question. <laughs> the tough question. Look, okay, there's a lot of ways you can get involved and it does depend on the individual. Um, if you're someone who wants to get out and work on inland care and do some, you know, replanting or, you know, there's, there's many, many ways to, to work with the environment. Um, and it's an incredibly rewarding thing to do. 
Oh, for sure. Yeah. It's one of those things where it's like you have the evidence there. It's like we can do this, but then another thing is actually getting people on board with it at the same time. Yeah. 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 Well, you're also in collaboration with Conservation International, putting together a restoration guide for mangrove ecosystems for carbon markets. Once the guide is ready, what will it mean for users reading it? So this guide, um, it's really going to be a tool for practitioners who want to restore the coast. And it's actually, it's a very large project and it's got, it's going to have, you know, at least 50 kind of authors, uh, this document. But so I'm part of the core group of organisers and we have some others at University of Queensland and then um, in New Zealand. Um, and basically we're aiming to provide a kind of a one-stop and it will guide you how to get funding, um, what different types of funding sources are available what, for different types of projects. Like what outcomes do you want to achieve? Is it really for carbon? Do you want to sequester carbon? Do you want to get it for, do you want to restore the ecosystem so that you have better fisheries or is it for social impacts? So say in Indonesia or Africa, where you're, you have people really just living off forests, they need sustainable wood, they need sustainable seafood. Um, it's a super exciting project because it is really aiming to make change all around the world. So yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to be involved in it. Um, it's great stuff, James, really is. Yeah, thank you. And how have you found the Southern Cross community supporting your studies and research? Oh, look, that is the reason why I am here, I think, is the, the network of researchers at Southern Cross. Um, so, yeah, I, I absolutely love working at this university. I, I did my bachelor, my honours and my PhD here. I feel like I know, you know, half of the university. And it's a really supportive place to work. Um, I think there's a lot of collaboration and there's a lot of support, yeah, to work together and to progress as a scientist. So yeah, it's definitely where I want to be based. Amazing. Yeah. Well, what is next for you in your career? Oh, the next step really is for me is for, is to get a grant, to get a big research grant. And that's pretty tricky step. Um, so I'm an early career researcher. I'm working as a postdoc now for Damien Ma. And at some point, yes, I'll have to bring in enough money to, to, to stand on my own two feet. So um, that requires a lot of a lot of things. It requires um, a great project idea that's realistic, that is supported by the academics around me. And for myself, it has to be important, you know, it has to be something that I really want to dedicate some time to. So, yeah, it takes a fair bit of preparation. Um, yeah, I guess that's where I'm at now. My next steps will be chasing research grants, potentially in um, either trying to restore the rivers or, or in blue carbon. I'm not sure which way I'll go. I'm pretty excited about all of it. So, Well, James, you do have a great vision uh, for the environment and how to improve it, which is great. So I hope you do get that and you can continue this great work. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much today, James. Take care. I hope a lot of people uh, listen to this because you have a lot of great things to say. And is there any links that we could click on or any websites that you have that we can look up further information? Look, you can definitely Google um, the title Restoration of Blue Carbon Ecosystems Method. Just type that into Google and it'll come up under the Australian government. It's um, 
the Emissions Reduction Fund, the Clean Energy Regulator. So you can just check out the method. Under there is, you've got a bunch of resources and one of them is uh, BlueCam, which is the, the calculator that I built to calculate carbon credits from Blue Carbon Systems. Um, check out Conservation International. They're a large NGO that I'm working with. And yeah, you'll see their restoration guide coming up soon. We're hoping to release that for the next COP, which is in Egypt at the end of the year. Yeah, that's plenty to look at, I think. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much for your time today, James. I hope we have you back on soon. Nice one, Blake. Cool. Thank you.